Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Partly cloudy skies. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Later in the program, the story behind the data and website of the Coronavirus Resource Center at Johns Hopkins University. I think this pandemic, above all, has demonstrated the importance of having good data in order to make sound decisions. And whether you're a public health official needing data to understand if your strategies are working or if you need to change course, or if you're just, you know, an average person trying to figure out how to live your life. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But in related news, as always, an update on Georgia's COVID-19 numbers. Georgia set a new daily record with nearly 3,000 new confirmed COVID-19 cases yesterday. Now, this data from the State Department of Health indicates there are 84,237 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 2,827 and 11,275 are now hospitalized. That, of course, is according to the Georgia Department of Health. And also, DeKalb County has issued a public safety alert urging people to wear masks in public areas and practice social distancing. This was an alert that actually popped up on folks' phones this morning, including mine. And I don't even live in DeKalb County. It says COVID-19 cases are rapidly increasing in DeKalb and across Georgia. Now, this comes as thousands of Georgia health care workers have all signed a letter that's going to Governor Brian Kemp today. It pushes the governor to require people to wear face masks in public. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Here's a question. Have you visited the Coronavirus Resource Center from Johns Hopkins? You don't have to travel to Baltimore, Maryland. It's online. It's quite remarkable. And it's become the go-to source for all COVID-19 data. Data from Johns Hopkins University shows the U.S. has over one... According to an interactive COVID-19 map developed by Johns Hopkins University, the world death toll has surpassed the... Johns Hopkins University has created an interactive map detailing all the places where the coronavirus has been reported. On the left side of the website is a list of the countries reporting confirmed cases of COVID-19. In the middle of the page is a map where you can scroll and zoom in on any area of the world and see the... And on the right side is a running count of the total number of coronavirus deaths and the number of those who have recovered. John Hopkins launched the dashboard back on January 22nd. And today we're going to go behind the data and find out how the dashboard was developed. Just how do they collect all that data? Is it accurate? And can it help save lives? Now, you want to join in at home? Go ahead. Venture online to the website jhu.edu. 
Then click on the global tracking map graphic. I'll give you some time. Meanwhile, let's welcome to Closer Look, Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo, a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Also, she's an associate professor in the Department of Environmental Health and Engineering and the Department of Epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And Beth Blower, executive director of Johns Hopkins Centers for Civic Impact. Now that we've given you all the time, we're all on the same website. Thank you both for taking the time. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. I must tell you, this is the first interactive edition of Closer Look, which who knows? Don't know what's going to happen. Let's begin with the development of this because there's a backstory. And I call it a dashboard. Is that accurate? Some people say website, portal. How did all this come about? Well, I can I can talk a little bit about the beginning of the um, of the dashboard, and, and we do call it the dashboard, particularly because the global map was built in a in a sort of traditional dash, dashboard fashion. Um, and it started with our colleague um, who works in the School of Engineering here at Johns Hopkins University, Dr. Lauren Gardner, and mm-hmm. she and a graduate student actually um, ha- were tracking other disease. And the grad student actually came from a region in China that was being disproportionately impacted by the virus um, and what really wanted to track the early data. And so they started just collecting the data from China um, and they decided to map that data. And that's how the, the dashboard got started. Um, and they started to realize that there was no authoritative resource for tracking information around uh, COVID-19. And so as more countries started to feel the impacts of the disease, they started to figure out ways to collect that data. Um, And now it's become sort of the hallmark of um, tracking information for the progression of COVID-19 and the impact it's having globally. Dr. Nuzo, this is important to note because all this is happening months before the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus a pandemic. So you are all kind of ahead of what we now know has become just this global crisis. Yeah, I mean, I uh, came to this a bit later in the process, but initially I was a user and um, I work on policy and epidemiology and um, we were looking for an authoritative source and um, Dr. Gardner's uh, contributions um, were uh, significant quite early on because, um, you know, as Beth said, there really wasn't any other place to go to get a sense of how many cases had been reported to date and particularly in a timely fashion. Um, and so I think there were lots of people looking for information and it filled an important uh, need and now it's become the global resource that it is. Well, and either one of you can answer this. How did you all even begin to outline what the dashboard should look like, what kinds of data you would need for this and how many people so- are working on it? So at first it was just Dr. Gardner and her team. And then we realized I also was a very early adopter user of the platform. I was planning travel overseas and was looking at the tracker to see whether or not that would be safe. Um, And then I realized that this was a disease that was fast spreading and that it was gonna have a huge impact on the US. And at that point approached um, the team and said, we should join forces. I I run a shop that's focused on getting data to policymakers and helping them frame decision-making. And so we joined forces and we also were joined by uh, the applied physics lab at um, Johns Hopkins University that also um, is very great at getting data moving. Um, And so it is still pretty quite a small team compared to some of the other efforts around tracking um, that are happening um, in the press and in other places. Um, But we are very committed uh, to the work. And we also started to understand that 
it wasn't just about tracking the cases and the deaths, but mm -hmm. the work that Dr. Nuzo is really leading for us is around testing mm -hmm. um, and the impact that um, we know that testing is gonna have on decision-making and framing the, how the pandemic unfolds um, across the United States. And so uh, we've been trying to stay ahead of where we think um, data is going to play the most critical role um, and trying to really just give information, not only to policymakers who have to make decisions and to health officials that are making those decisions, but to regular everyday citizens that are trying to decide, is today the day that I go out, go to the store? Do I wear a mask? What are the sort of personal decisions I'm making for our family? Um, and, and those are the things that we're, we're just astounded by, just the level of interest in the data itself and how it's framing that kind of decision making. Well, and where and how do y'all collect this data, not only here in the U.S., but on a global front, too? And I imagine you have partners around the globe that also help in getting you information. You know, we, we are taking data from public data resources mostly. So we're relying on governments who are providing that data and releasing that data. Um, and when it's not available, like in the United States, it's very difficult to get, you know, county level data and national landscape data. We're actually going through and sort of of trying to understand all of the data mechanisms that are happening at the local level. And then we're sort of gathering that all together and putting it on the on the platform. We rely on some international resources. We look at um, like the World Health Organization. We look at all a host of different resources and aggregate them in the data. And how often is this mapping system updated? The updates happen throughout the day. So as we we, we have a, a, a continuous run, we, we, we call them scripts, where we take information and we move that information into the platform. So we're updating the global map um, in near time as data gets updated. It's typically updated on the resources. Um, and then on the US map and in some of the um, other sort of visualization work that we do on the dashboard, those things are typically updated daily. And Dr. News, I want to ask you this because you heard her talk about how this can be a useful tool in helping with public policy. This data is helpful for researchers, scientists, but also can be helpful in maybe developing a treatment or helping public health officials just combat the spread of COVID-19 in general. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why um, I am particularly so excited about this project. I think this pandemic, above all, has demonstrated the importance of having good data in order to make sound decisions. And whether you're a public health official needing data to understand if your strategies are working or if you need to change course or if you're just, you know, average person trying to figure out how to live your life with this virus around us, um, it's really essential that uh, we have some evidence for our actions and uh, we've seen this in particular with some of the kind of newer elements of the site. Beth mentioned that we've been tracking testing. Mm -hmm. Testing is the process by which we find cases. And in analyzing different states' approaches to testing, it helps us interpret, are these case numbers representative? Do we think they're missing a lot of infections out there? Are we worried about whether they're headed in the wrong direction? We know that public health officials actually um, use our analyses to guide whether they need to do more testing or to gauge whether they're on the right track compared to others. We know the media also looks at it to kind of ground truth um, what they're hearing from public health officials mm -hmm. and crucially people. I mean, people look at it and say, you know, is today a safe day? Do I have concerns about being out in public? Is there any information you all would like to capture, but you haven't been able to as yet? Yeah, yes. there's quite a bit. <laughs> I personally have a wish list, having spent a lot of time looking at the testing space. We know that states are reporting how many tests they're doing and the numbers that come back positive, which is important, but there's 
more information we'd like to see. We'd like to see it at the local level to understand if tests are getting to everybody who needs them in a state. We have some concerns that maybe testing isn't as distributed as it needs to be, or that certain groups may have barriers to accessing testing, which can possibly contribute to greater hospitalizations and deaths. Um, we also uh, have some concerns about the quality of the data that states are reporting. Um, I think it's been hard for them to kind of stand up these uh, surveillance systems in the midst of a pandemic. And so sometimes they lump different kinds of tests together that probably don't belong <laughs> in the same basket. I and mean, we'd like to see them kind of separate those out. And so we think by showcasing the data that they have and having a frank conversations about the strengths and the weaknesses, it can help inform better practices in the future. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because I was digging around here and moving around. Do you all have data on demographics as it relates to ethnic groups, sex, age, or is that just too much to try to tabulate and put into this dashboard? Well, the the reality of the situation is, is that it's not being reported consistently. And so because we don't have that consistent reporting, we have been tracking very closely, particularly the racial disparities that are emerging in testing access and the impact that the disease is having on Black communities, on uh, Latino communities, mm -hmm. and also on Native American communities. And it is astounding what is emerging in the data. Um, but the real barrier is that it's not being reported consistently. And that is not happening. The guidance isn't consistent on how that data should be collected or shared. Um, and so we're sort of manually doing this work by, if you go into the U.S. map, you can actually click on any county mm -hmm. and it will break down the county demographics. So you can extrapolate the impact that a particular county is having because they have populations that are predominantly Black or predominantly Latino or predominantly Native American. And we're seeing that disparity have significant impacts, particularly um, in communities that are already hard hit by poverty or communities that are already hard hit by uh, the comorbidities that are agitating the outcomes of the disease. But in the meantime, uh, we're working to just do sort of ad hoc reporting. So you can see we have some resources on who is reporting mm -hmm. um, uh, and who is not reporting. Um, and we're trying to put pressure on everyone to report as at the local level, all of their data broken down by race and ethnicity. And let's go outside of the U.S. for a moment. What about in other parts of the world? Are there other regions where you all desperately would love to have the information, but maybe it's too challenging because of the public health infrastructure or that it's in a part of the globe where it's just really hard for even people to have access to the Internet even for them to even send the information to you? So I think globally um, we see a few trends. One, um, there are actually a number of countries that have been very transparent about their data and they have really great data systems. It almost makes me jealous um, that they, the level of information they're providing, not just on the cases and how many tests they're doing, but then they also do these very elaborate um, case investigations to explain where the cases likely got sick and who um, was involved in a particular outbreak, how many people. And we've learned a lot by studying these countries' data and the kind of investigations that they do. It's, I think, in some ways, um, something the U.S. should aspire to. That said, there's still parts of the globe where data is not as complete as we would like. And in some cases, it's just limited by infrastructure and the amount of testing that can be done. But in other cases, it's also just limited by transparency. And so not every country reports how many tests they're doing and, and what they're finding. And that just makes it hard to truly know where in the world the virus is and what the trends are. Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? 
one of the overarching lessons of this and pandemic is that we are all in this together, whether we want to be or not. And sharing these data between countries is absolutely crucial in order for us to gauge how best to protect our own people. Dr. Nuzom, I'm curious, what country did you see that, as you call it, you're a little bit jealous of that has a wonderful infrastructure or that you think that we could get some lessons from? You want to praise um, one of those nations? Yeah, there's a number. I mean, I'll, I'll just call out New Zealand, for instance, which recently declared itself COVID-free, and they have a very detailed description and accounting of their cases and exactly when they occurred. And New Zealand has sh- shown all of its investigations, and, and they have a very low percentage of cases for which they don't know where the cases became infected. Similarly, Singapore has had really incredible accounting of all of the outbreaks that are occurring and who infected whom. And it's really very elegant work that has not only taught us about how to control um, COVID-19, but also um, helped us basically understand the biology of this virus in terms of what environments um, it's most likely to transmit in and what uh, activities could um, be risky in terms of, of having outbreaks. So there are a lot of good models out there for us. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, what area of the dashboard is accessed the most, would you say? <laughs> so the global map is still the place where a lot of people are coming for information yeah. um, and, and and the U.S. map. So the two maps are definitely driving a lot of the traffic um, on the on the site, but we're seeing a, an increasing interest uh, in the testing data and mm. for people who are tracking the percent positivity of testing in their regions, particularly as we're seeing a lot of states um, think about or reassess their social distancing policy making and think about um, what the impact it's having um, and the increase in case that's happening and that we're witnessing, particularly in the southern part of the U.S. and and out west. You know, before we became live and I was sort of joking with y'all and I called you all rock stars, but I'm imagining this other area, they have rock stars because how big is the cybersecurity team to keep this dashboard safe? (laughs) And do you take them to lunch every day? (laughs) We are very indebted to our colleagues at the Applied Physics Lab here at the Johns Hopkins University because they've been doing a stand-up job. Um, Despite many efforts to thwart our work, um, uh, they are definitely very valuable partners. Have you had any attempts of someone trying to, I don't know why you would want to hack the well, you never know. That's a whole other Don't invite anybody. <laughs> Don't give anybody any ideas. Right <laughs> we have very good defenses for anyone who's listening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, here's a question I haven't asked you all, but we've sort of talked about it as we wrap up, and that is someone listening saying, well, this is great information, but how accurate is this data and what it means, not just for scientists and researchers, but just for the average person? The case data is actually quite strong. We do have um, significant processes in place to validate that information. And so we're, we're working hard as new areas of exploration like testing emerge. We still have to really understand the parameters of that data and making sure that it's representative of the effort. I also think that testing is really driving the case data. So there are probably lots of cases in our communities that are unknown because we have asymptomatic carriers of the virus um, and we have people that have legitimate barriers to getting testing. So particularly in highly densely populated areas and areas that are disproportionately impacted by poverty, I do really worry that there is a, a hidden pandemic that's unfolding that we just don't really have under a full understanding of. Um, and that's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night for sure. And Dr. Nuzo, I'll yeah. give the last word. 
Yeah, I, th I think that's an important point to make. I mean, I often get a lot of questions like, are these case numbers being overreported? Are the deaths being overreported? Are they exaggeration? And um, that's not what we think is happening. In order to be counted as a case, you have to test positive. The same thing to be counted as a confirmed death, you have to have been tested. And so we have a, a validation for those. The fact that a, a test is done gives us good confidence that when a case a case is a case and a, and a confirmed death is a confirmed death. But as Beth said, not everybody has access to testing and not all states are doing enough testing. And we do believe that they are likely missing a lot of infections and deaths out there because they haven't been able to test. And so if anything, they're probably the reported numbers are an underrepresentation of the tolls that this virus has had on our country. Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo, Senior Scholar at the John Hopkins Center for Health Security, also an Associate Professor in the Department of Environmental Health and Engineering and the Department of Epidemiology at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, and in Beth Blauer, Executive Director of Johns Hopkins Center for Civic Impact Translation. They are rock stars. Thank you all for what you do and your entire team there. Thank you all for this great resource, not just for journalists and people like me, but the entire, really the entire globe. Thank you all for that. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. According to the Marshall Project, 48,764 people in prison have tested positive for the coronavirus. Now, there's at least 548 deaths among prisoners. It's also believed one of the first deaths was right here in Georgia. 49-year-old Anthony Cheek was being held in Lee State Prison near Albany, Georgia. He died March 26th at a nearby hospital. And others have tested positive for COVID-19 at Lee State Prison. Meanwhile, advocates for those who are incarcerated say the current coronavirus is a crisis that exposes systemic flaws in the nation's criminal justice system. Where do we begin to address this? Well, there's also a new report from the national think tank, the Council on Criminal Justice, and it outlines 15 steps to reform the United States criminal justice system. This report was penned by a bipartisan criminal justice task force, and that was chaired by Georgia's own former governor, Nathan Deal. But joining me now to discuss all of this is the CEO and president of the Council on Criminal Justice, Adam Gebb. Mr. Gebb, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's good to be with you, Rose. Let's start with this pandemic when we talk about issues with the correctional facilities in, in the nation. We really are having two crises right on top of each other. Some people have said it's a pandemic within a pandemic, but the, the pandemic uh, of what's happening with our criminal justice system has been a very slow moving one. Some would say 250 or even 400 years, and it's coming to a head all right now where people are pent up and they're frustrating and that is coming out. And for those of us who have been working in this field for a long time, myself starting here in Atlanta in 1987 as a reporter covering the police department mm -hmm. um, 
back uh, back in the 80s at the height of the drug war, it's a very scary moment. And it's also a very exciting one because it does feel like for the first time in a long time, uh, we are at a point where uh, we can make a real difference and there's an opportunity to. And part of that is that coming into this situation the last few months, there was an incredible bipartisan agreement that the criminal justice system was neither producing enough safety nor enough justice. And what's critical right now is that we try to do everything we can possibly do to hold that bipartisan agreement together and not have the protests and what's happening on the streets right now rip it apart. Well, let me back up for a second. Let me ask you this, because I've asked this question to a number of people before in all the conversations I've had. How do you define, if you can, what criminal justice reform should look like? Now, I realize that's a broad umbrella. Well, it really is a top to bottom situation. Uh, You know, in a technical matter, Rose, the way the criminal justice reform has uh, been used, that term has been used over the past many years, really has referred to what we call the back end of the system, and that is sentencing and corrections. So Mm -hmm. given that there's been a crime committed, how is that person dealt with by the the criminal justice system? What are the chances that that person is going to be uh, uh, held pre-trial? Uh, what is that? What are the chances the person are going to be sentenced to prison? How long are they going to serve? And then what kind of support and supervision are they going to get on the back end coming out of prison? That's what it has meant. Uh, certainly in the last few weeks, uh, the concept for a lot of people has broadened substantially and, uh, and includes what's happening on the front end of the system. Mm-hmm. And not just what police uh, are doing on the streets and how they're doing it, but really the much bigger question of what is the role of police in a free and democratic society. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned, coming into the program and Georgia's Mm -hmm. own former governor, Nathan Deal, I've actually had conversations with him. Mm -hmm. He was really the architect of changing Georgia's or leading Georgia's criminal justice reform process, because as he alluded to, the state was spending so much money that there were no actionable outcomes. Uh, criminal justice in this country is a fundamentally state and local function. Uh, 90% of the prison population roughly is, is at the, the state and local level. Uh, there are 18,000 uh, police departments in this country. And so real change is going to have to occur on a department by department, on a city and county and state level by, by state level. Uh, that said, uh, there is a an incredibly important role for national leadership in this country to set the tone and the direction of this conversation. And there are some important steps that the federal government can take. And we did uh, with the first task force report of Mm -hmm. the Council on Criminal Justice that you mentioned that Governor Deal chaired, uh, outline a set of steps that this bipartisan group of leaders felt like were the most important and at the time politically viable things that the uh, federal government could do to make a difference. There are more than a dozen states that have private prison contracts. Some folks say this is not a good thing. This is also part of the problem. How do you view private prisons or what we call for-profit prisons here? They have come to play a really symbolic and important role in this whole debate, Rose, but I do think some of it's misplaced. Private prisons have accounted for Uh, roughly about 8% of the total prison population. Mm -hmm. And if you were to wipe out all private prisons, you would reduce the population by that amount. And I think a lot of people, uh, particularly some of the loudest voices in this conversation, wouldn't blink 
if you got rid of 8% of the prison population. That would be considered tinkering mm -hmm. and, and incremental change. And so while there is something just, I think we all feel in our core that at some level, putting somebody behind bars, when that has to be done, should be a function of government. And it should not be something that is done uh, by a private company with for-profit interests. Uh, on the other hand, if we put a lot of energy into, into things that are not going to really move the numbers that much, then we miss opportunities to do things that could have greater impact. Well, that leads me to my next question, which deals with another uh, guideline, which is establishing a, quote, second look provision, allowing people serving longer sentences, many of them elderly, uh, to ask courts for, to reduce their sentences or simply release them. Would it be based on their health condition would be based on how much time they've already served, would be based on the severity of their conviction. Right. I'm really glad you asked about this one, uh, particularly here in Georgia, because uh, Georgia is a, a state that did keep parole. And uh, here in Georgia and across the country, many states do have what is known as parole, where a group of people take a look at somebody's record behind the walls. They take a look at their, their previous uh, criminal history uh, and make a judgment based on those and other factors as to whether or not somebody uh, is ready to be released back to society. And that doesn't exist at the federal level. That mm -hmm. was abolished in the 80s. And, um, and in the federal system right now, you have to serve 85% of your sentence. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of positive aspects about that certainty of sentencing, both for uh, uh, victims who want to be assured that they know exactly how long uh, their assailant was behind the walls, uh, and even sometimes for um, uh, for inmates themselves. But in this case, the task force really felt like there needs to be hope at one level, mm -hmm. and that there needs to be a chance for uh, for people to go back to the court. Some mechanism here. Uh, for people who have really changed and can really demonstrate that they are uh, a different person and are a safe bet going back to the community to take that case back to court and have it heard by a judge. Mr. Gibb, let me get your thoughts on this. Do you see police reform, community policing reform as part of criminal justice reform? Is oh, there absolutely. There's an intersection there. How do you see that? Well, in, in a criminal justice world, we call this we call the system a funnel, mm -hmm. uh, and that funnel starts at, the, at its widest end with uh, the actual number of crimes committed. Then it uh, then it narrows by the number of crimes reported to police, then to arrests, then to prosecutions and convictions and incarcerations, and then coming out the uh, out the back end. And uh, uh, as we talked about a few minutes ago, a lot of the focus over the years has been at that back end of the system when the funnel has already substantially narrowed. So you're dealing with a small fraction of, of the cases that make their way from, from the start of that funnel. And so the, the real opportunity here is to shrink the number of cases mm -hmm. that are coming into the system in the first place. And that has so many facets of it that I, I know you're, you're itching to get at here. But I would I would just flag one, particularly here in Atlanta, mm -hmm. which um, which hasn't entered this debate yet, but I think deserves a real place here, and that is the three one one system. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when I started out as a reporter here in the '80s, uh, I was on the night on the night shift, 
uh, from four in the afternoon to, to one in the morning. I was listening to the police scanner and hanging out at the police headquarters uh, and often would go into the 911 call center uh, if, if nothing was much was going on and hang out with the, the operators. And I was absolutely blown away by the types of calls that would come in to the 911 center. Uh, for people uh, looking for the police to do things that had nothing whatsoever to do with laws or law enforcement or anything going on. In fact, there were a number of people who just called up, and, and this is this is really sad, but they would call because they had nobody else to talk to. Hmm. And and they would dial 911 and just try to engage the operators in, in chat. And, um, you know, flash forward here now, for several years, the city has had a 311 system, which has as one of its core purposes, let's take these calls that, that used to come into 911 that people used to be asking the police to respond mm-hmm. to and put in a system with an easy to remember number that will help triage and then, uh, and then disperse across the city government to other agencies, uh, things that people used to call the police for. So non-emergency, are you you're referring to non-emergency calls correct. that you typically would want an officer to respond to? Exactly. And uh, my hope would be that that system here and, and elsewhere where it's put in across the country has started to shift people at, away from relying on the police to do, many, to do so many things for them so that they can, in fact, focus on responding to emergency calls and investigating serious violent crimes. Your organization was formed about a year ago in response to the 2018 Federal First Step Act. You reduced some sentences and reformed inmate reentry programs. Have you been able to measure the progress since you all were formed? And if so, how? What metric are you using? Great. Well, uh, I appreciate you asking about the organization. We are about a year old, so so we don't have a, a long list of successes at this point. In fact, the, the task force report that, that uh, you were referring to just came out a couple of weeks ago. It was our yeah. very first task force report. We're, we're, we're extremely pleased to have worked with, uh, with Governor Deal and and uh, former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates here in Atlanta um, and, and many others uh, across the country to put together what we think is, is a, a very uh, comprehensive and aggressive report that is really the strongest indication yet, I think, of the depth of the political consensus on criminal justice reform. Uh, there are individual proposals in there that push further than these, but none that are as far reaching and, and as comprehensive and have such a broad backing across the political spectrum. But the, the, the world right now is moving at warp speed, uh, as you know. Uh, things that did not seem uh, politically possible even just a few weeks ago now seem like they are going to be done and done quickly. So yes, we, we anticipate that, that this report will get a strong reception in Washington, primarily the recommendations of this first task force report are aimed uh, at Congress and at the administration, and so there's, there's a good bit in here for the judicial branch to do as well. And and so we have been asked already to provide briefings to several lawmakers on Capitol Hill, to the administration, uh, and to many of the, the advocacy groups in Washington that are working on these issues day in and day out. Well, Congress is, this has been an interesting Congress. One could label them a Congress that sometimes has issues working across the aisle, being that this is a bipartisan-led effort, does that give you some hope? It does, uh, but uh, as we talked about a a little bit ago, uh, it's hard to know 
how this conversation is going to tip right now. It's an election year, and there are some fault lines that are being drawn here now. Uh, very optimistic that uh, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina on the mm -hmm. Senate side is, is drafting some police reform legislation, and uh, it does seem likely that something will happen there. But this is this is really important thing for for people I think to understand, which is that uh, if you don't have the data and you don't have the numbers and you don't run the analysis, you risk shooting at at targets that are not going to produce the kind of change mm -hmm. that we need. Um, a quick example here is chokeholds. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that is something that obviously needs to be done. It's outrageous in this day, day and age that we don't have all police departments that have uh, formally banned that practice and other neck restraints. So it's absolutely critical to do. But uh, when you look at the numbers, you see that uh, chokehold asphyxiation accounts for about 1% of the uh, police killings that we've had over the past 20 years, about 200 or so of the 20,000, about 1,000 a year, three a day, which is mm. incredible. Uh, so important to do, and with all these problems in this massive and fragmented system, you have to take uh, you have to take every bite out of it that you can. So taking taking that bite uh, out is is really important, and it's certainly symbolically important. But it's not going to move the numbers in a in a way that I don't, I think anybody anybody wants. So we need to we need to do many many more things, including those things in the task force report that have a lot to do with uh, with enhancing the legitimacy of the criminal justice system and mm -hmm. the perceptions that it does treat people of all races equally. Adam Gelb is CEO and president of the Council on Criminal Justice, and we've been talking about a task force recommendations. We'll have a link to the report on our website. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Appreciate your focus on these issues. Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. On the coastal edge of Georgia in McIntosh County, roughly 300 miles southwest of Atlanta, there sits an island that can be only accessed by ferry or by plane. We all know it as Sapelo Island. Called Sacred Land, it's also the home to living Gullah Geechee descendants, black folks who are direct descendants of West African slaves. Now, since the 1700s, generations of the Gullah Geechee people have been living on Sapelo Island. However, at least 90% of the land is actually owned by the state of Georgia. Now, there was some concern that state lawmakers would pass House Bill 906. Now, that measure would have allowed the redistribution and selling of land, actually protected under Georgia's Heritage Trust Program, but it would have been allowed to be sold to outside buyers and developers. Well, the bill went nowhere. But what about next legislative session? I recently spoke with Victor Allen Weeks and Jennifer Thompson. They're recent graduates of Davison College. They worked together on a project to make food more accessible for people living on Sapelo Island. And we were also joined by Maurice Bailey, Sapelo Island residents and community liaison. So Victor Allen, Jennifer and Maurice, thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. And Maurice, let me start with you, because I'd like for our listeners to learn a little bit more about Cornelia Walker Bailey. Who was she? Cornelia Walker Bailey was the historian for Hall Hermit Community. 
she spent her life trying to protect the Harriers and the last surviving Geechee community in the state of Georgia here on Sapelo Island. But also more than that, too, she was someone very special to you as well. Yeah, she was my mother. Um, and I'm trying to pick up where she left off at. I've always been active in the community, also trying to do the same thing, trying to preserve as uh, much as possible of our heritage here on, on Sapelo. So I learned a lot from her, and I picked up from that and continued on. Maurice, at what age can you remember first being told about your heritage there on the island? It was never a sit-down discussion. Uh, we was always just, in general conversation, mentioned things about the old man, mm-hmm. mentioned things about something happened on the island. But also my mother made sure that, that she rose around the island every Sunday to all the old house sites, to all the old communities, for we always remember where these communities were and where the house sites were. So that was her way of teaching us about our, our history without sitting us down uh, with, a, with a book in front of us telling us about our history. So we did a lot of all history in our family. And throughout the years, or over the years, Maurice, there have been many families, but how many families are currently still on the island that you know of? There are seven original African-American families left out of 44 original families. I want to bring in Victor Allen and Jennifer into the conversation. You all, as I mentioned earlier, you went to college together, and then you took a trip to Sapelo in 2018 for the first time. Victor? So um, I actually took an Africana studies course. It was African Healing and Religion in the American South. And a part of that course, um, we took a field study through Low Country, Georgia, and South Carolina. And Sapelo Island and Sapelo Island's Hog Hammock community happened to be one of those historic spots that we traveled to and learned about. So during this, um, during this field study, we built relationships and that's when we first met Maurice and a few other community members. And we went back to Davidson and a couple months later, Hurricane Irma hit and it was requested to have some support in terms of just like cleaning up around the community on church grounds, things like that. And so uh, me and some other students, we organized a trip and Jennifer Thompson was actually one of those students that was really close in communication with me in terms of making sure we had the students and we had all the infrastructure set up to get down there and support that kind of began the relationship that we have with Hawk Hammond today. You talked about taking this trip and then learning about the community, but there were also some issues that you all witnessed, that you all saw. What were they? So when I initially took my first visit to the island, some of the things that I noticed immediately was that there was only one store. Um, Well, actually, even just to backtrack, getting to the island is pretty not intense, but it is a journey because once you get off of the highway exit, say you're coming from Atlanta, which is north, Mm -hmm. once you get off of that highway exit, you have to travel like another 15 to 20 minutes just to get to the ferry dock. And then you have to take either a 15 to 30 minute ferry ride, depending on the size of the ferry and which ferry is running that day or during that season. And then when you get onto the island, there aren't any convenience stores, grocery stores where you can collect goods that you would usually use every day, that people use every day, including food items, clothing, um, hygiene products. Maurice does own a convenience store and he sells dry goods. And he, I think he does sell some hygiene products, 
but Maurice is one man and his story, his story is only so big. Mm-hmm. Um, and it still eliminates a lot of products and resources that people would normally use day to day. So say you have an emergency, um, how are you to access those products mm-hmm. or even resources? And so that was one of the things that I noticed. Um, and just being super involved and engaged with food justice especially within black and brown communities. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, Victor Allen and I are from the same neighborhood. You know, you start to notice patterns of what type of foods do I have access to? And Mm -hmm. I'm culturally, I come from a different background, so I'm Caribbean. And so the types of foods that I would normally have in my everyday diet that my mother cooked for me growing up, we don't always find those products in the grocery stores that are around us. We have to go all the way to Decatur, which is a 30 minute drive or Mm -hmm. here and there, which is, you know, way out of the way. And so my drive or my journey to get food wasn't nearly as tedious as the journey for some Sapelo Island residents. And when I was talking to some of them in terms of like, how do you get your food? Where do you shop? People were saying like, you know, you have to get on the ferry. That's 15 to 30 minutes. Then you have to drive into Brunswick, which is another like 15 to 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, you probably reach a Piggly Wiggly that doesn't have the best quality produce. So if you want to go to Publix or Kroger, that's an extra 10, 15 minutes out. And, you know, some people would actually just drive all the way to Jacksonville, Florida, which was an hour ride once you got to the ferry dock to go to Costco to get their food. Maurice, you just heard Jennifer talking about the access to food is an issue. But I want to also ask you about in terms of medical care or a clinic. Is there anything on the island for those who live there? It's not anymore. We used to have a visiting doctor used to come on the weekends, but this is like 30 years ago. Uh, we do have a few people treating our first responders, and we do have a helicopter service available to us. Um, we are primary when, when it comes to emergency with the helicopter service that's available. And the ferry system is designed that uh, anytime it needs to run for emergency situation, we just call up the crew and they'll run no matter what time of the night. Uh, and they can get you off the island within 15 minutes if, if need be. So we do have some stuff set up to get people off the island. Jennifer mentioned that you have a a store. It's obviously can't meet the needs of what you all need. Maurice, someone listening will say, well, have the residents asked for any additional support from the county throughout these years, throughout these decades? What has that relationship been like with the community and and the county? We have asked for, for support with the county throughout the years. Uh, and they did not give us a lot of support. They give us a, more support now than they did in previous years, uh, simply because when the state purchased Sapo, the county kind of washed their hands of us and they put put it in the hands of the state. They well, the state's supposed to do this essential service for y'all. So under the Central Service Act, the state was providing some services, but we still need our county to help us with other services. Uh, but because our isolation, they felt the state was there for us. We didn't get a lot of support. Um, now we're getting more support uh, because the, the Geechee background that we have in the county is now want to capitalize on our Geechee background for tourist purposes. Mm-hmm. So we started getting a little more support. So you say now you all are getting more support because there's an interest in terms of tourism. But you have a different opinion about that, too, because that could also mean that perhaps your residents, including you, Maurice, y'all could be displaced. Yeah, it, it's, it's happening that way at this moment. Um, like we mentioned earlier, we don't have a lot of descendants left. So we have a lot of white owners now that's forming their own organization. 
Mm -hmm. um, so we are in danger of losing more. Uh, so instead of we going to our county and say we want something, now this group is forming that it's bigger in numbers uh, because they have more steady housing here that they're going to approach the county and say we want. So we are losing our status as descendants um, because we're being overrun by landowners now. Maurice, do you all have any advocates, state lawmakers, who are, in a sense, in support of you all? They have your back. What has those conversations been like? Yeah, we have we have several people have our back, but we also have, they're also politicians. Mm -hmm. So if it's going to make them look better or they're going to make some money somehow, um, then they're kind of looked the other way and say, well, it's not many people left on Sapple. Well, we still have more tourists and more whites coming to Sapple. So, no, let's cater to them. So we don't have a lot of faith in, in the politicians that represent us because we have several come to Sapple. But when they come to the island, they don't introduce themselves to the natives of Sapelo. Mm -hmm. They don't shake hands. They don't say they come in. They don't do anything. They come over here to socialize with some of their counterparts and leave the island. I want to go back to Jennifer and Victor Allen for a moment because I want to talk about this farm, this garden that you all have created and take our listeners through the purpose of this community garden, what your focus is on growing. When we first wanted to create the community garden, we knew that it would be more than just a garden more than just people being active on land it stood for something in terms of food sovereignty land sovereignty and it was advocacy for the Geechee culture that's here it's it says that occupying this land and utilizing it to uplift the community members that are here it just signifies just a strong heritage and culture that has not only existed for years and years but will continue to exist and will continue to be sustainable. When we first approached it, we wanted to make it a holistic view in terms of, oh, you had different types of fruits and vegetables, but it seemed that the community wanted to get more towards red peas and purple ribbon sugarcane, I believe. And so that's not a problem because these are crops that have had a historical and cultural significance to the community. And so we wanted to definitely honor that and just keep that in mind. Saw as a priority should be our priority as well. We started in summer of 2018. Uh, Jennifer and I were down there for June, July, and part of August, clearing land. Um, had a couple volunteer groups come out here, and a couple members helped from the community, from the Department of Natural Resources, support us as well. But there were long hours just toiling in the sun, clearing land. Um, building box beds, raising fences. And it's been cool to see how we went from just like raw forested area mm -hmm. to create a space that could have an infrastructure to grow more and more food. And not just those two crops in terms of red peas and sugar cane, mm -hmm. but also expand to create a more holistic view in terms of like the nutrition that people need. If you have not had red peas, let me tell you something. <laughs> Oof, they are delicious. Jennifer, anything you want to add about the, the garden? Like Victor Allen said, you know, we right now the primary focus or what's primarily being grown in the garden are the sugar cane and red peas. Mm -hmm. I think as college kids, because I was 19 when we started this, I entered the project with the expectation of the garden to be fully up and running within that summer. Um, and that was something that quickly humbled me once I got onto Sapelo and saw the amount of space that we were working with and the land that we were working with. 
And so it really has just been a journey and it's very much so still in its early stages. And right now we've really just given control over to Maurice in terms of what he wants to grow. And I think we do want to transition into growing more produce. There have been like several stores that have reached out to Maurice in terms of like partnerships and things like that. But, you know, of course, we still have to have a garden that's actually producing a certain amount of vegetables before we can move into that stage of what we hope to become in the future. And here's a question that uh, all of you all can chime in on. As I mentioned earlier, House Bill 906. That's not to say that a legislation like that couldn't come back. Maurice, instead of legislation like House Bill 906, which would allow private developers or someone else to come in and, and own the property there, what would you like to see happen for the island and for the Sapelo residents instead of this type of legislation for your community? Yes, leave it the way it is. Uh, it's, it's protected now. We have the state, the federal government, and the University of Georgia that do a lot of research here on Sapelo. We have a lot of historical sites that are still visible throughout the island. Uh, so I feel we got enough going for us that we should not be under this microscope. Uh, if, if this happens, then we're going to lose access to our old communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, the research will be in jeopardy. Jennifer, Victor Allen, you all want to add anything to that? Um, one thing that I used to talk about a lot with Maurice when we started the project was the difference between tourism and healthy tourism and how it's super, super important that the people on Sapelo, the residents of tourism that they are exposed to because we know that Sapelo could quickly become another Hilton Head or elsewhere. Like, And so I think Maurice is super, super, super on point when he talks about like people who are doing research, people who are involved with the Georgia Natural DNR um, and UGA, just in terms of like, how do you expose people outside of Sapelo to Sapelo without hurting Hog Hammock residents and descendants on Sapelo? Victor Allen? I will just echo what Maurice and Jennifer mentioned in terms of preserving Sapelo the way that it is. It's been a haven for the Geechee community there to thrive. They've been thriving. They've been sustainable. UGA has come in and started to develop more healthier relationships, healthier relationships with the community. The Department of Natural Resources has been there as well. And with close interaction of healthy relationships in terms of volunteerism and tourism, I think that can be managed by the community members and liaisons that have Sapelo's cultural and biodiversity interests at heart in terms of making sure it's conserved, preserved just for years and years to come. As we wrap up, Maurice, in a 2008 interview with NPR, your late mother, Cornelia Walker Bailey, said these words. We're going to play it in just a moment, but I want to thank Victor Allen Weeks, Jennifer Thompson, and I also want to thank uh, Maurice Bailey. Thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. This is a topic, an issue we're going to stay on top of. So thank you for taking the time. The Geechee culture consists of people, their dialect, or sometimes people refer to as language, their way of life, the way how to do things, the way how to express themselves. And it always centered around land. Uh, your culture is no good if you don't have land. So we are holding on to the land so we can hold on to the culture and the history at the same time. Well said. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.